This is Retail Retold, the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. I'm your host, Chris Ressa, and I invite you to join my conversation with some of the retail industry's biggest influencers. This podcast is brought to you by DLC Management. Hi, everyone. I'm excited to announce on Sunday night, March 6th at 7.30 p.m., I will host a live Ask Me Anything virtual event. I'm going to talk about all things commercial real estate and retail. Check out retailretold.com slash AMA for more details on how to sign up for the event and submit your questions today. Join me on Sunday, March 6th at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Sign up today at retailretold.com slash AMA for more information. I hope to see you there. Welcome to Retail Retold, everyone. Today, I am joined by Simeon Siegel. Simeon is a senior analyst at BMO Advisors. And for those who don't know, the episode Simeon and I did last year was the number one listened episode on Retail Retold in 2021. So I'm excited for him to be back for a repeat. Welcome to the show, Simeon. Hi, Bar. Wow. <laughs> last time I came on, and never, no one knew any idea. Now I got to beat the top. All right, let's do it. <laughs> Great to be back, Chris. <laughs> So, Simeon, tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you do. So the audience who missed that episode will know now. Absolutely. So I am a managing director and retail analyst at BMO Capital Markets. So what I do is I focus on the evolution of retail of, honestly, we spend a lot of time on the different channels and the conversations you and I have that are most fun. Make sure to probe things that people think are obvious or platitudes like retail is dead and direct is the only way to go. Anytime we hear the word obvious is when our pens pick up and we start thinking, okay, if it's obvious, if it's so obvious, it probably actually has a lot of questions behind it. So we try to to do that and essentially chronicle, advise, and participate where we can on this fun path that is retail. Excellent. Well, today, everybody, our episode is going to be the top five retailers that we are higher on than the market. And... It will be only public retailers. I will go through how I came to my list. I'll ask you if there was any thought process at all and how you got to yours. But the uh, it is not a stock recommendation. It is not uh, anything other than we just feel pretty good about these retailers based on some facts and some things we know. And that's really what it is. Before we get there, we have a section, Simeon, called Clear the Air. I don't think we had this when you came on. I've got three personal questions for you. And audience, he has not prepped for these questions. So they will be on the fly. And well, he's very one nervous. One of them pretty hard. He's very one nervous. One of them pretty hard. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, here they go. Question one. When is the last time you did something for the first time, Simeon? The la- that's a catchy question. The last time I did anything for the first time. Um, I'm going to have to say waking up every day during the pandemic probably hit that checklist. Um but uh, yeah, I think that this idea of trying to work, utilize bandwidth, manage three different Zoom classes happening across my house with the, the boys trying to learn what they were doing was probably a test in and of itself. A lot less exciting than maybe some of the answers you probably get. But then again, I haven't prepped that one. So I'm, I'm going to stick with that for now. You didn't go skydiving or anything? You know, in my mind, I think I was jumping off a plane every <laughs> time, but... <laughs> That's the beauty of, uh, of, of virtual reality, I guess. <laughs> For sure. Okay. 
I should turn question it around. Two. Do people ever ask you that question? Uh, people ask me the last question, which I'll, I'll, All right. uh, 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 I'll tell you. So here's number, here's number two. What is one thing most people agree with, but you do not? Everyone knows direct is the way to go. Wholesale lesson. Internalize the fact that there are toll collectors and middle people for a reason. Don't shun them just because they're charging you a fee. So one thing we've been talking about a lot, and I'm assuming you're asking this professionally rather than personally, but professionally, I think it's just so easy to say it's all about direct and wholesale is bad. And I disagree with that wholeheartedly. All right. So direct consumer is not the only answer. Okay. Last question. What is one skill you don't possess, but wish you did? Jumping out of airplanes. <laughs> I would love to be talking it. <laughs> I would love to be able to move things with my mind, but um, sadly, that that's not there. Um, listen, I think that... Wow, that is a good one. That is a good one. All right, well, then I'll, I'll stick that's with that. That's a great one because mine is photographic memory. Listen. Mine's photographic memory, so that's better than that teleconnection. It's a good blend. That is good. I can move the yes. photographs in your memory right. with my mind. <laughs> that is a really cool one. I like it. Okay. We're going to go into our topic, top five retailers, where higher on than the market. Uh, so one, did you have a process by which you went and chose these? Um, I, I do have a process. Um, I think I have a Venn diagram. Do you want me to jump in first and go through mine or can we hear yours first? I don't want to, I don't want anyone to kind of think that I, uh, I my, painted your view. My process was simple. My process was simple. One, they had to be public. Two, I decided to take the specialty retail approach and do specialty retailers in that category. And they're at least specialty retailers in my mind. The market might put them in a different place, but I, I think they're all specialty retailers. And three, uh, I chose retailers that don't get as much headline news as the traditional, like I'm bullish on Walmart and Target and they're not on my list. Great. All right, so mine... And then, and then we'll, we'll go back and forth maybe and split the, the five. Yeah, that's what we'll do. Yeah. So we just went and you and I had a lot of fun last year talking about stores versus prices being oversaturated on discounts versus oversaturated on, on units. I think we can all finally agree that COVID had some very important silver linings for retail. I think we also know that price points went up almost across the board, right? Whether you call it inflation from an economic term or full price sell-through from a retail term, we all raised prices. What I'm trying to do right now is we watched the rising tide lift all boats. We watched the rising, the, the waning tide or whatever the right nautical term is supposed to be, pull the boats backwards. So the receding tide was negative. We now need to look at winners and losers as opposed to clusters. And so what I tried to do, my team and I have tried to do is think about holistically which retailers and brands actually improved pricing power versus which simply saw higher prices because of inventory scarcity. Because what's going to happen now is the companies that just saw higher prices because no one else was promoting, well, companies are going to start promoting it and they're going to fall back to that pricing pressure. Whereas those that actually said, we're just going to bear hug the really good customers and forget about the dilutive customers those are going to be the ones that walk out of this with a lot of power. So you're going to see, I think, three of the companies, three out of my five are brands that I think actually did something different and walking out healthy and will walk out with healthier pricing power. One of my companies is going to fit into 
how do they benefit from those that did not? And then one of my companies is going to be a little bit of a flyer in terms of a multi-year interesting opportunity. So with that, am I starting or are you You starting? are starting. Okay. So we actually just upgraded Under Armour recently. So you and I, I think talked about Under Armour and Victoria's Secret last year as being two brands that went way too far, not too fast, just way too far, grew for growth's sake, started effectively losing money or meaningfully under-earning because they were heavily discounting. I think Under Armour has had this come to awareness moment where they realize less can be more and profitability is what to focus on. And I think Under Armour is one business that walks out of this pandemic in a much healthier position than it started. It's a really interesting one. And one of the things that I think, and we mentioned Victoria's Secret, one of the things that happened with them and it relates to prices and a little bit, at least it feels as a consumer to me, different than Nike is the exclusivity of the product. It seemed like in the beginning of their journey, becoming a, a brand and a, and a box, it was really challenging to get the product. It was like really cool and exclusive. And then it showed up everywhere and the pizzazz waned a little bit. That's how it felt to me as a consumer. I think their products are great. I own a lot of Under Armour workout shirts. And by the way, in the beginning, their commercials were like the best commercials known to man. Ray Lewis's commercial. They were, they were awesome. So, and, and you're coming at it from a pricing angle and being able to hold price. So it seems like their product got flooded in the marketplace over a course of time. And so that's typically a time where it's challenging to maintain price. Typically, price goes down. Got it. So totally agree with that. Rewind that comment two years, though. So the idea here, so we actually, so same kind of conversation you had. So, so I am a little bit referencing the stock, not in terms of the stock call, but just thinking how we think about a company, not simply from its box perspective, but from its profitability perspective. My, my team historically had a sell rating on Under Armour. We shared all of those concerns of oversaturation. And the reality is they were one at the beginning of COVID that realized slapping that UA logo on every single thing they could was the wrong move, right? They realized that by becoming big, they became diluted. And so that was this focus of becoming healthier rather than a louder company that I think this kind of, I think Under Armour has been very effective out of the last two years. And just for numbers, they took a 10% margin down to zero as they were growing. They now brought it back to 10 and there's more room to go. So I think wow. your point, so it's, you know, it's here, here's actually really interesting. For anyone listening to this, if I were to ask you inventory across broad brands and retailers last quarter, was it up or down? Most people, right? We think about supply chain constraints. What do you think? Up they or would down? say down. There were three companies that I look at that did not have inventory up. Everyone had inventory up. And we'll talk about this. And you and I have talked about this where supply chain to me in 2020 shut down. Supply chain in 2021 slowed down. In 2020, no one was making anything. In 2021, no one was delivering anything. So you went from this creation issue to a transportation issue, but people didn't fully internalize it. So most people have higher inventory and most people have it through in transit. So it's stuck somewhere. Under Armour was one of the very few that has gone on this two-year inventory recalibration story. And it takes time and it takes us an emotional, to break that belief, to think that Under Armour became the Gap hoodie in Disney World It'll take time for people's perception to shift, but the company has been doing a really effective job and we've been seeing it play out in the, in the process. Very cool. Okay. 
Uh, mine is torrid. Interesting. So my experience in talking to people who work at retail companies, especially on the apparel side, when you say, like, what do you want leadership to be focused on? They always say the same thing, which is the merchandise and the brand. And Torrid is super focused on this. They've got an interesting niche in the marketplace that competition has been from the traditional brick and mortar side has been, you know, whether it was Dress Barn and, and whomever kind of going away. And they they have really, from their messaging on the brand, have really dialed it in. They're super focused on the, the, the product. They are, I think, 95% of their customers are loyalty customers. They've got really good loyalty. In their ICR release, they said that both the online and the physical was profitable. And the market segment that they're attacking has a lot of runway for them based on their percentage of the market. And so based on where we are in the, as a culture, based on what they're doing from a brand, how data-centric they are, and the runway for growth and that they're already profitable in both channels and they've seemingly got it working from both the online and the physical, the, the stock has taken a hit and it was a recent IPO. And then, you know, IPOs typically have that pop and they go down. So maybe this is a layup. I got another recent IPO that maybe that's the same. But I think the, the category has a real opportunity. And I don't know if anyone is poised like them to do it. They do claim they want to be the number one direct to consumer in in apparel and intimate, so they are direct-to-consumer, but you and I have talked about direct-to-consumer getting to scale, and I don't know, I can, you know, and you can compare it to the other direct-to-consumer companies. They don't get, you know, lumped into that because they weren't digitally native, but I, the from a business perspective, you know, they're larger in in revenue than a lot of these companies. I, I, I can't pull the number. I don't have it off the top of my head, but they're larger in revenue than most of the digitally native brands that we talk about. And so they, I, I don't know that I would categorize them already at scale, but they're more at scale than some of these other digitally native brands that get all these headline news. And, and to be clear, right, when you and I talk about it, I'm not anti-DTC, I'm pro-Omni. So my point Perfect. is, if we think about it, all the brands, right? So we have the digitally natives that you brought up on one hand that are just starting. But then we have all the brands that are heralding this story of go direct away from wholesale, by definition, are the brands that became large and became profitable through wholesale. So that's this idea of my thought is like when you and I talk about stores versus e-com, it's a similar way. You are supposed to disrupt. You're not supposed to destruct, right? Or not supposed to destroy. So I think that people forget the way that worked in the past actually is the best way. It's just that now you internalize, how do you add on and evolve and add on this data centric approach and being able to, to get closer in other ways. So I, I don't think that's, that's crazy at all. And I also think people have been talking about that sector 
as being a completely underserved sector for so long that if you can get someone who can create a strong brand experience and an appeal, I mean, there's no, why not? Right. Yeah. So that's what I'm higher on than the market. I like it. All right. So my second will be quick. So my second is similar to Under Armour. It's the same idea. It's who affected change and who can appreciate that you can do more with less. And that's Capri, the owner of Michael Kors, Versace, Jimmy Choo. I specifically yep. asked John Idol, the CEO of the combined company on the conference call last quarter, what are you going to do, John, when and if promotions come back across the group? And he, on the public conference call, said something to the effect of, I don't remember the exact words, but something to the effect of, when, if they're already back, right? Promotions are coming back and they will come back more and we will not participate, right? We know last time we chased volume, we gave up profitability. It wasn't the right move. We know who we want to be. We're going to stick to that. And I think that's what we want to see walking out of the pandemic because I think retail, we, my team just did a report today actually on the increase in cash balances. And what we found over half of the companies that I look at have almost uh, between have more than 5% of their total market value of their total market cap in excess cash. In the last two years, they've generated cash that they have on their balance sheet right now that could buy back 5 to 15% of their entire company. Powerful. So for the companies that walked out healthier by selling less and charging more, those are the ones that I want to know that are going to stick to it. I think Capri is one of those. So that's Michael Kors still has a little bit of, to your point, a down market. They went too far, but I think they have emerged in a better spot. It's an interesting one. I was just at the NRF and there was a gentleman from uh, McKinsey who studies the grocery sector. And he said that grocers have 86 billion more in cash on their books than they did pre pandemic today. That is, was just staggering. Right. And so the conversation was, what are they going to do with that cash? Right. Right. And so, uh, but that was staggering. Uh, So my next one is, City Trends, Mm. again, they have a niche that is very few competitors. Uh, They've been doing nothing but over the last few years of just printing unbelievable comps. Uh, So they've been growing their comps. They've been, uh, they've got a really interesting niche. Now, There's definitely, you know, where the where do they go next? But they have this is a company that has very little, if any, debt. And which is obviously a challenge for retailers. So you have a retailer that's comping up. That's in a niche that very few people are playing in, at least from a public sector at a chain size this this big. And has the opportunity, not leading with debt to be able to continue to grow and do things. And so it, they get very, they're small, they get, they get very little coverage, but they are public. And I think that they are poised um, to do better than the market thinks. They were doing well. They had a recent dip in the market. And I, I think, you know, I think it's a little bit, you know, this, again, might be a little bit of a layup. They didn't take as big of a hit as some of the other companies that I'll talk. And it's probably, you know, standard with the dips that have been going in the stock market today. But in general, I do think I, I'm surprised the market's not higher on these guys than I am. And um, I think the it, it's a pretty interesting story. 
Well, so what's interesting about like as we're looking through your your process, so you're really going. You said specialty, and you're really sticking to specialty, which is which is interesting and compelling because it used to be we had the big box. And then we had these very unique niche specialty focused on specific customers and they own their customer, right? They own them more than data. I was having a conversation with someone recently where they were talking about how you think about who complains about iOS and the change of Apple and marketing. It's all the smaller digitally native companies. You never hear Ralph Lauren complaining about it, right? Like the large businesses generating tremendous volume seem to be able to, even without knowing their customer, seem to be have, have every insight they need to sell a lot of volume. So what's interesting is like you had these traditional specialty apparel retailers. What a knew, great point. What a great point. Right. And like they knew them. They know them because they sell to them. So you don't have right. to be on someone's iPhone to know exactly what they want. And I think that's really important as we think through what does it mean to actually know a customer? And so you're finding these very rare, like it's rare that we still have at scale niche businesses. Because you think about Gap and Limited, like the family of brands, they were the the the, the forefathers or whatever the, the equivalent would be in retail, the four retailers of what we know modern day retail to be. And no one would accuse Gap of being niche. Right? Yep. So I think that, that's it. I like, I like where you're going. So those, those two are interesting. Um, I'm going to take that and deviate for number three. So number three, I'm going with Bath and Body Works. And the reason. Oh, no. Is that yours? Oh, no. All right, then you take it. You They're take on my it. list. No, we'll both use them. So they were my number one. They were my number one. <laughs> They were my number one. I like it. All right. You want, you want, you want to go with yours or you want me to go with mine? <laughs> go with yours. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I, it, great. I'd say great minds think alike, but that would be putting me in too high of a class. So um, what, what I'll say here is what's interesting to me about Bath and Body, I'm curious what you think, is I think it has all the benefits of what you're talking about with the niche, but I think it's underappreciated because people still think about it like the ones you mentioned, or people still think about it like a Victoria's Secret and the nature of fashion retail is it goes like this. It's you take big risks, you get paid for them, and then you have certain seasons where you have to mark down. The beauty of Bath and Body is it's perceived as being discretionary fashion, but what it actually is is replenishment. So it gets to exactly what you want, but if you think about it, everyone that bought a pair of leggings during COVID has those leggings in their closet right now. Everyone that bought a candle has burnt it five times over. So it's this great business where once you hook someone, the curve looks like this, not like this. And so this beauty of having a business that's perceived to be discretionary and volatile, but actually is just as strong and consistent as TJX. And I'm foreshadowing my next pick. So if you have TJ, jump ahead of me. But it for, it's as consistent as an off-pricer. That's a powerful, powerful equation. An extremely important extension to our staff at DLC is our insurance and risk management advisor, Smith Brothers Insurance. For 15 years, Smith Brothers has worked closely with us as our outsourced risk management department. All year long, Smith Brothers work with our executive team, property managers, accounting department, as well as our legal department. The day-to-day services they provide frees up our time and makes our jobs easier. Smith Brothers has access to all the major insurers specializing in insuring real estate risk for owners, retail tenants, developers, and property managers. Smith Brothers has clients throughout the United States that make up their retail, habitational, office, and industrial portfolios. To learn more about managing your risk, contact David Soul at 860-430-3335 and visit www.smithbrothersusa.com.
they're really they're working on their loyalty program right now, and they they believe that's going to be uh, really a uh, a game changer for them. I would say this is an at scale direct to consumer brand. I think majority of their products are direct to consumer, and I believe a lot of their products are made in the U.S. So that th- I think that's obviously in the supply chain world that's good. I was talking to Buff City Soaps and somebody who was a franchisee from Buff City. Uh, they're obviously going ahead to Bath and Body. And I interviewed him in the pandemic. And he's a franchisee of a large one. And I said, you know, how are you doing? You're opening stores at a pretty large clip. And he said something interesting, which was people buy a lot of soap in a pandemic, Chris. <laughs> and so I said, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, but I think... If I start from the macro and, and where Bath and Body like is a little bit of an intersection of two places to me, which is this personal care meets home, which is just like two unbelievable categories to be in, whether it's the candles for your home or the fragrances and lotions for personal care, like what an unbelievable sector to be in. And then to have the brand that they have. And then you translate that into dollars. And I look at the comps that they had, which were really strong. And then you go to the stock and you're like, this is wild right now. How is this going? How did this fall off a cliff so quickly? And it is, you know, and we're not talking like really into the numbers, but I think there's from a story perspective, you're in the personal care home intersection, which I think is unique. You have this unbelievable brand and, you know, brand name. You're about to do this loyalty members program. You've had proven sales history that's just, you know, proven. And they've been, they were comping up and they comped down last year in certain quarters to 2020 because this is, that was the type of stuff people were actually buying in a pandemic. And so they had this unusual spike but comparative to previous years, they're in pretty good shape before pre 2020. And so I look at it and go, this is a really good story to be moving forward. with." Well, listen, you said it right. Like with this broad sell off, everyone sold the baby out with the bath and body works water. Did it work? Did yeah. it work? I was, I was trying to figure out if the pun could make it. Way <laughs> it it <laughs> um, worked. So, so interesting. So, so I'm not close enough to Buff City to opine, but from what I've seen, my impression is that they also give you this artisanal element where you kind of like create it in stores, which is this interesting. So you're tapping into everything we're discussing with the experiential nature. And so you you can hit on a few different pieces. So it's an interesting one that you bring up as well. Yeah, so Buff City, you can create your own soap there, which obviously from an experiential nature is really unique. Um, but they sell a lot of things that a Bath and yeah. Body would sell as well. So. Yeah. I, I like that you bring them up. I mean, I think like they're probably going to be a conversation that we're talking about. Listen, I, I would venture to guess their brand awareness. People probably don't, I don't know if all of your listeners are going to even know who they are, but I bet they right. will in the next five years. Yeah, for sure. Um, I love it. That, yeah. that, that was my one. So I'll give you what, what I, what I was at on my, on my three, which is uh, Joanne stores. Mm-hmm. Oh, by the way, one other thing with bath and body is from a physical real estate They've got a really good mix of of malls and open air sites and strip centers. 
And they've done a really good job pre-pandemic in when an enclosed mall wasn't working in in work and operating in an op, an open air center, the strip center. They had a real estate strategy that feels like it was ahead of a lot of the traditional specialty retailers in enclosed malls. And obviously that is uh you know, near and dear to my heart. So that was the other thing that I think is interesting. Well, and, and don't sleep on that, right? Like this is a company with a very strong online business that is still opening up stores and it's opening up stores very, as you say, real time. Like they appreciate that they should pivot off mall when that doesn't work. And they have some very compelling mall stores as well. So their, their real estate team yeah. is very in tuned. They're very much not going with the platitude of the mall or stores are dead. They're figuring out what stores make sense and which stores do not. Yeah. Okay. My next is Joanne Stores. So uh, this this is my other recent IPO. And again, this is one where I looked at their ICR presentation, which was, I thought, really compelling. But for a recent IPO, totally different than Torrid's presentation. What they did during the pandemic to dial in their omni-channel, it was really remarkable. They're, I think 35% of their online orders get picked up in store. They are, they really own a piece of that market. We think about the arts and crafts sector kind of being pretty uh, saturated between Hobby Lobby, uh, Michael's Arts and Crafts and Joanne. And we had AC Moore fall out pre-pandemic. But these this retailer has an interesting niche. I, they, they, I think they're the largest seller of sewing machines, right? <laughs> they really know their customer and they are they are dialing in on that customer more and more and more. They're doing things. I visited their flagship relocation in Columbus, which they had this creative studio inside where you could go and take a class and learn how to make a quilt and do cool things and learn these things. And the store is vibrant and exciting. And me who knows nothing about sewing wants to walk in the store and wants to like buy something, even though I don't, I don't, I shouldn't buy anything in there because I can't do anything in there. So um, they had sales rise tremendously in the pandemic. They, they capitalized on like making your own masks and things like this. They really did a good job and, Kids were home and needed projects to do. So families were buying things and stuff for their kids to do. But I don't think the the craft market's going away. They've got sales to prove it. And the market, you know, they did what a typical IPO does. They came out of the gates hot and they've dropped. But I think they've got a, a business that's at scale. They're putting money. They're taking a little bit out of the Target playbook. They're putting money back into the stores, refreshing them because they have a lot of old stores that need to be re- remodeled. They're doing it. They're reinvesting. And when they reinvest, they see a sales lift in that store. And they the, the margins they give are pretty pretty wide at how big of the lift is in their ICR release. And, it, and in our centers where we have them as a tenant, we're seeing traffic up in these stores and they're doing really well. So it's one I'm, I, I'm, I'm higher on than the market. So I, I like, listen, again, as I like hear your approach and there's certain things that you and I are both in agreement on in terms of the framework the notion of one experiential is not like this idea of it was all about experience over things before COVID. And then it became all about things versus experiences. And like, let's remember that 
it's never one or the other. So this idea of whether it's right. Buff City telling you you can make your own soap, whether you're learning how to sew inside of a store. And by the way, I'm expecting a scarf this Christmas, so I'm just telling you. <laughs> uh, at the end of the day, bringing people into a store, right, giving them a reason to want to be there. You and I have always talked about people don't love e-com. They love convenience. All things considered, you'd much rather be in a store than be in your underwear on your couch. But the problem is that's much more convenient. So if you can offset the drive with a reason to be, there's nothing more powerful than that. So I think like I, I, I like the way you're framing it. The other thing that I think you're hitting on recurringly is this idea that what you and I talked about, Under Armour went too far. They diluted their brand. Get ahead of that, right? So like I like Under Armour now because they're working to fix it. But you, if you never make that problem in the first place, that's pretty good too. So knowing who you are, knowing who your customer is, knowing who you want to be, and don't chase growth for growth's sake. Don't just try to sell something else, regardless of what that something else is. It's a very, it's a very easy message to say. It's a very hard message to do. But if you can find someone that has that level of discipline and can focus on speaking to their core customer without trying to find another world of opportunity, listen, I, not, not, to, not to knock on them, but like Lulu had to severely lower the numbers on Mirror. Under Armour had to had to end up selling connected fitness. Nike shut down fuel band. Like we watch certain companies believe they're making a, a, a logical move, but then several years later realize that this was kind of an effort to try and stretch to a different audience. And that's where you get a little stuck. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So you got two left. Back to me. So this one is going to be, um, I might get some pushback on this being uh, above or, or under the market. TJX, right? Everyone knows it to be a great company. But what I think people miss, the reason I bring it up is everyone knows TJ is great for the customer. I think what we're going to increasingly find is increasingly more important for the brand. And I think that when you and I talk, when, when we hear Nike talk about focusing on differentiated retail and leaving undifferentiated retail, I think over the next few years, we're going to start hearing about visible versus invisible retail. I think that a brand going direct needs to, and this was the report that I was referencing, we found that these brands, as they went direct, did not see an increase in revs, did not see an increase in gross margin, didn't see an increase in profits. The gross margin part is shocking. And I think what we're finding are that brands are going to want to go direct, elevate their brand, control their image, but they're still going to need the scale. They're still going to need to sell these units that if they pull out of department stores, they're going to need to make up. And I think a company like TJ wins because it doesn't have online, not in spite of it. And I think that if a brand can know they can drop a pallet off at TJ or a pallet off at a Costco, whatever it is, a big box, and it just moves and no one knows that it was even there in the first place, that's a very compelling opportunity and something that I think will continue in a very big way and accelerate over the next several years as brands focus on invisible retail rather than visible. So love TJX. They're a large tenant of DLCs. They're amazing. And I, I think a lot of things. One, the store experience, I think, is fantastic. People call it like just the, the treasure hunt. One of the things that happens in this treasure hunt is that we, we, we forget is you sometimes get like this one of one of a kind item. There's only one of it. And I think that is really, really cool that you're going to get that at this, you know, value oriented store. I think their stores look great. I think they've got great merchandise. They've just upped it up the level of merchandise that they have in the store. They've obviously produced the numbers and they've got from a real estate perspective, really solid from a retail operations perspective. They are unbelievable. One of the things they, they, that they don't get enough credit for is 
So the Sierra brand that they have, and that's a tenant of DLCs, which is kind of like the off-price REI. They bought that as an online-only retailer. And then they scaled that very prudently, very smart about the markets they went into, to a very, very large chain. And so these, this group is unbelievable retail operators. And when, let's not forget about some of the fundamentals of retailing, right? Like, you know, you, you have to have a product and service at a value that people want to buy. You have to have good leadership. We don't talk about that enough. You have to have a strong balance sheet, obviously, if you want to be at scale. But operational excellence at like matters a lot. It's not just stack it high and let it fly, right? And and if there's any, TJ is really good. And then you look at, you know, they were in a different line of business with it when they had the AJ rights a long ago, and and they how effectively they disposed of that and continued to still grow because that was a large chain that they just unwound. I, they are remarkable at what they do. By the way, I'll throw in one thing that I think is also underappreciated because I agree wholeheartedly with everything you just said. I think people don't appreciate how good they are at storytelling as well because the other big thing about retail traditionally is storytelling. But you and I think about what storytelling is done at a TJX when all you're doing is rolling out racks and letting people be your employees for you, right? It's, it's operationally economical and it's transactionally powerful, but it's not storytelling. It's not brand building. Furthest from the truth, right? You just brought up the treasure hunt. The, their ability over the last decade to convince the world that it was not a negative to shop at TJ, it was a badge of honor, was very, that was a huge unlock, right? TJ doesn't sell cheap clothing. They sell expensive clothing cheap. And this perception of you get the find, you get the treasure hunt, and that's a win, is not something that is, is, was ever accepted before. And I think the beauty is I love, every time I hear the treasure hunt, I laugh because they've convinced the world to view the treasure hunt as a good thing. No pirate enjoys hunting treasure. You like finding treasure, right? And yet no one says it's the treasure find, it's the treasure hunt. And what they've convinced you to do is they've convinced you that to be their employee, they'll roll it out to pick, pack, and ship your own thing and try to find that one secret pair of whatever LeBron drops that happen to make their way there. You're convinced that the journey is actually part of the experience. And that I think is powerful and amazing. And I don't think their storytelling is as appreciated as it should be. Wow. That's really cool. Yeah. Good perspective. Uh, my, 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 the, the one I had at number one is bath and body. So I'm just going to go to two for me, which is boot bar. Again, I focused on specialty yeah. here and, and it's a chain of Western wear stores that's upped their style and merchandise over the years. They've grown tremendously. It was like, you know, 50% growth in, in sales over a two-year period. It's been pretty astronomical. And they have, for a, a chain of uh, th- that in this sector, and, and maybe it's part because it's so niche, but they, if you compared it to some of the other specialty chains I've talked about, of Joanne and Torrid, who are in the five, six hundred, bath and by thousand plus stores, they have 278 stores. 
And so as they've mixed this and, and their brand, you know, if you go to their website, because I was looking at this before this, what they say on their website, we say that our customers feed America, build America and protect America um, as this Western and workwear retailer that's gone national, that's really focused on the apparel side of it. Many of the retailers that have like played in this area have like always ventured into other parts of the segment and, and it's done, they've done well by it. Right. I think, um, but the, this group has been very focused on what they do. And as people want to be outside, um, you know, this, this total brand about this bringing America together, I think is really interesting story. Their sales have backed it up uh, for years now. And when you look at a retailer of this size and how much, you know, white space for stores there are in the country, the, the growth story to me is really compelling. Chris, you have a type. I like it. You're, you're <laughs> Only, not- uh, uh, just uh, as it related, I wanted to pick because I wanted to get to a place where I wasn't randomly just choosing retailers because there's a bunch of retailers that I'm higher on than the market. Yeah. So I said to myself, let me stick with specialty because I think it's an interesting category that, you know, quite candidly in like the throes of the Great Recession got hit. And it, it feels like to me, there's this huge opportunity for what happened to me with specialty is that was like one of the areas that kind of converted online a lot better coming out of the Great Recession than uh, in physical retail. And obviously, I, I, I focus on physical retail uh, a lot. And as I looked at the, the way of the world, there seems to be uh, a resurgence for physical specialty like I haven't seen before. And one of the things like you and I talked about is because the direct only uh, it, it's not the answer. Right. Um, and so it's made this unbelievable um, story for physical uh, specialty retail. And now, now all of these brands that I've mentioned aren't direct to consumer only, right? Like Joanne and Boop aren't yeah. sell other brands. They're not their brands. They're traditional specialty retailers, but there's a place for them and there's runway to grow. By the, by the way, they are the original direct-to-consumer, right? They're selling to the consumers. They're selling, they might be selling other people's things. But, <laughs> right. but, like, but, but, I, but I mean that seriously. Like This was part of the pivot of the, this idea of DTC. Like we've, we've insulated what it means to be DTC, whereas at the end of the day, no matter what you're doing, you're taking someone's creation, someone's IP, whether it's a sweater or a song or piece of technology, you're then distributing it, trying to find the optimal customer, and, and there's a lot of people on that path. And whether you're the one employing them or whether you're outsourcing it, like there's no company that you and I know that's vertically integrated as much as they want to believe it, right? Lulu, is, which is perceived as the vertical integrator, doesn't own their factories. So I think it's just a question. And, and by the way, on the flip side, the digitally native brands that are like adamant about not doing wholesale pay an advertising agency to tell their story. So there's this really interesting idea of partnerships and kind of where we go. But I, I like, listen, I think that you create your your my, what my team does when we look, when we pick stocks, we try to create our common denominators based on trends we're seeing and then screen for who falls into them. So, I mean, I think what you, the, at least three out of five that you brought up share a lot of similarities. I think that that's, that's great. Yeah. Cool. Uh, all right. Your last one. So my last one, and I, and I wasn't going in, in rank order. I was more going in kind of like cluster order, 
My last one is a very is a potentially very interesting um, high flyer with with uh, with a little bit of a different risk profile. So Traeger. So the wood pellet smoker. Do you know them? Sure. Have you have you tried them? I haven't, but I I I, I know my 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 my. I literally just got a text from my brother that said Jill just bought me one. So uh, so. This is, you know, my views on Peloton, so this is going to sound weird, but I think that Traeger has a really interesting storyline that resembles Peloton. And I mean that in a good way. And if you think about it, it's a one to $2,000 initial purchase that comes with a recurring spend because unlike a grill with propane, you buy the pellets, generally speaking, from Traeger. So they create this level of attachment, but they also have this very strong engagement via their app. So Traeger's a business from what I can see and, and I've used, that creates this very strong brand evangelist, which was what we saw in the early days of Peloton, but it's not known in half the country. So the way I look at this business, also one of your recent IPOs that has felt the pressure of being a recent IPO and a business that sells enormous, very heavy pieces of steel that have felt commodity inflation and, as we know, supply chain transportation inflation. So the stock's taken a big hit coupled with the fact that people have a general view of, did anyone who wants to buy a grill during COVID already buy it? So when I look at this, I see a business that in the regions where it's known, it has phenomenal penetration. So people love it where they know it, and it's just not known on the right side of the United States of America. So I think that if they can get the margins aligned, if they can kind of create that pathway and work through the externalities that we're all dealing with on a supply chain side, I think you and I are going to be talking about for a very long time this brand awareness unlock, which is always a really attractive opportunity for the Traeger grill. Totally. I, it's an interesting analysis or, or an interesting comparison to Peloton. Uh, I hadn't looked at it like that, but I, I do find that interesting. The, the brand is interesting. And, and as you put it, where they're known, it's evangelist, right? And they have... A little bit for the people who just learn about it, that Peloton it factor, like my brother spent a day bragging to me, my, we have a group chat of two brothers that it's just the three of us bragging to us that he has this thing now. And I, I clearly, um, if that takes off and that story gets told throughout America, there's huge runway here. As someone who sends the pictures, I would be worried you're about to start getting a lot of brisket and smoked turkey and a lot of pictures, not, not necessarily the food. You're going to get the pictures. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. He just went through his whole list of like, what do I do first? Blah, blah, blah. So um, very, very interesting. So you've used it. I have cook one. more now. I've cooked more now than I've cooked in my entire life cumulatively beforehand. It just, it gets you, it, it, it engages you and it brings you in and I can, I can feel his, listen, I try not to anecdotalize, but after a 20 hour smoked brisket session, you feel like you've accomplished something or you feel like you've wasted a tremendous amount of time. One or the other. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is, it is, you know, it's a hobby. It's not just a, Absolutely. it's an actual hobby and thing to do. It's not just eating brisket. Yeah. It's but the beauty whole, is. It uses technology to take someone like me who had no idea what he was doing and allow my kids to now view me as a hero when I give them their barbecue. 
So walk me through. I'm not familiar with that part of it. So give me the, the how that works. So because it's wood pellet, and I'm not going to pretend to understand the tech, but because it's wood pellet, so it's a fire that is created by this kind of administering of the pellets. So they have they have tech built in that connects to your phone, connects through there. They call it Wi-Fi. So it's all done via app if you want it to. That keeps the heat at the same temperature throughout and you can control it. But so oh it allows you to do a very long smoke because, right, the ideal smoke is low and low and slow. And it takes someone who has no idea what they're doing and basically gives you a step by step if you want it. Like, I bet if you Got really it. know what you're doing, you don't use as much of the training wheels that I use. So it's like you can do it at all levels. But if you have no idea what you're doing, it basically says, Simeon, press this button, wait this amount of time. It's going to be great. And it is. Interesting. So so slow and low has hasn't changed it's still that's still the minds that's still the process to get a good brisket low and slow that that, that part hasn't changed as well as far as listen that's what i'm told and it works <laughs> <laughs> agreed okay well listen this was great i want to go through our five in, in no order uh yours were under armor uh traeger tjx uh bath and body and capri Exactly. Mine was Bath and Body, Boot Barn, Joanne, City Trends, and Torrid. Love it. So, uh, listen, Simeon, this was great. I really appreciate it. Uh, I think this is going to be a fun one. And hopefully we are number one two years in a row. You know what? It's so- always fun, even if we don't. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to Retail Retold. If you want to share a story about a retail real estate deal that you were a part of on our show, please reach out to us at retailretold at dlcmgmt.com. This show highlights the stories behind the deals from all perspectives. So it doesn't matter if you are a retailer, broker, entrepreneur, architect, or an attorney. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Retail Retold so you don't miss out on next Thursday's episode. I'm excited to announce on Sunday night, March 6th at 7.30 p.m., I will host a live Ask Me Anything virtual event. I'm going to talk about all things commercial real estate and retail. Check out retailretold.com slash AMA for more details on how to sign up for the event and submit your questions today. Join me on Sunday, March 6th at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Sign up today at retailretold.com slash AMA for more information. I hope to see you there.